This is what <laughs> you were in Afghanistan before this. What other war zones have you been to in the last like four years, five years now? Uh, Libya. Oh Libya, yeah. When it was uh, Tripoli, when it was being attacked by Khalifa Haftar. Jesus. Uh, I was in Iraq for the ISIS uh, and, and routing in Mosul. Yeah. Uh, I was in Syria. Uh, in uh, HTS controlled Idlib when the Russians were bombing it. So yeah, man, touch and go. Yeah, so <laughs> definitely not, definitely not a desk job kind of guy anymore, huh? <laughs> I wasn't planning on doing another one of these editorial editions so soon. Uh, the plan was always to do them once a month, but um. It turns out that life is a lot more involving than I had originally thought it would be, which is very naive of me indeed. But basically, okay, so here's what's happening, right? The Melbourne International Comedy Festival is kicking off. It starts this Thursday, which is the 31st of March, and it continues till the 24th of April. And I'm doing a show every single night at the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, like a one-hour show. It's called Unappreciated. Tickets are available right now. If you head over to the Melbourne International Comedy Festival website or my website, thesamishow.com, and it's hard work and, and I'm doing that show I'm also doing um, a whole bunch of guest spots around the place I'm taking part in a a couple of shows for the comedy festival one of which is running a new satire comedy night and so it's kind of all avalanching down on me that coupled with the fact that I still teach at University of Melbourne I have a, a lecturing job there um, not really a job it's a contract but still I lecture at University of Melbourne and lecture in journalism and on top of all of that um, you know I've got my parents coming from Pakistan uh, I haven't seen them in four years. They arrive in a few days and they're here for like two months. It's going to be a big deal for me and my daughter who, you know, who hasn't seen her grandparents in four years either. I don't know if you know, there's a whole COVID thing that happened and closed borders. Some of you might have noticed, but I know you're not paying me, you know, Patreon money or just subscribing to my podcast to hear me make excuses for why I'm going to go AWOL for four weeks. And I'm not going to go AWOL for four weeks. I'm just not going to be able to do Newsweekly the way I normally do it for four weeks is my problem. Because Newsweekly, in its current format, a format that I love and take great pride in, is a very research-heavy, production-heavy show. It takes me a day and a half of writing, editing, researching, collecting things to make a 15-minute news satire podcast. Obviously, I'm not smart or very good at my job, but that's how long it takes me. The editorial editions, the original plan was they're going to be bonus editions, but I think for the next four weeks, just for this month, during the Melbourne International Comedy Festival, I'm going to lean on them a little bit to take the pressure off of me. So you still get something cool, I hope, and I get to you know, not have to worry about that day and a half of production. I can kind of throw something together a little bit quicker than that. I'll make it worth your time. They're not going to be half-assed. I promise I'm going to be lazy. They're going to be worth your time. Case in point, this episode right here. I was, you know, wanted to do more about Ukraine. I did the last editorial edition about Ukraine as well. And I kept thinking, you know, we've got all these perspectives coming our way. You know, where are we getting our news from on Ukraine? And it's from, you know, ABC or BBC or CNN or any of these places. And they're all relying on war correspondents. And as a viewer, I find that fine. I'm, I'm getting my information from these places. I cross-check by looking at other places. But, you know, overall, I'm largely, you know, I sometimes check Bellingcat to make sure that it, things are factually accurate. But overall, 
you know, this is how I kind of do my news about Ukraine. But I'm also really lucky in that I have friends who are journalists and senior serious journalists who are, you know, some of my friends are wartime correspondents. And they're in, one of them is in Ukraine right now. Um, and I thought, you know, what if I speak to him? What if I find out what he has to say about what's happening in Ukraine? Ali Mustafa and I started working together in 2006. Ali was a news anchor. I was a news producer. Actually, when we started, neither of us were those things. We were just young people in our 20s who wanted to set up Pakistan's first English language news channel, which had really responsible, mature news gathering that you know took the role of uh, news uh, very seriously and, and did not add salaciousness to any of it. You know, there wasn't tabloid journalism. Uh, it was under the venerable banner of the Dawn uh, name. Uh, Dawn, D-A-W-N, is Pakistan's oldest English language newspaper founded in 1947 by the creator of Pakistan, by the founder of Pakistan, Muhammad Ali Jinnah. And Dawn newspaper, which is still respected highly in Pakistan as being one of the true bastions of journalism, of qualitative journalism, decided to start a news channel. And um, the news channel now is no longer an English news channel. Ratings never got where they wanted to, them to be. They kind of had made a whole lot of bad decisions on the marketing side and the sales side, which is what always happens with these things. You can have the best of intentions, but the marketing department and the sales department of any organization will fuck it up royally. But for a while there, it was myself, it was Ali Mustafa, it was a whole bunch of other, other young journalists who wanted to make something great. And we tried and we did for a while there. We really, truly did. Um, Ali used to be a news anchor. Uh, he was a damn good news anchor. And he was always an adrenaline junkie. Always, you know, when there'd be a riot and Ali'd be grabbing the camera and running off to cover it, you know, in person before you could even tell him to sit down and anchor the bullet and you have to find another news anchor. As, as his producer, it was a pain in the ass. But, you know, with Ali, I got into a lot of trouble as well. It was fun. We, you know, we went and attended some riots. We went and attended some protest marches. We went and attended some, like, you know, we survived a suicide bombing together. Um, It was intense. And for me, going through those experiences, the lesson was, I don't want to do this. I don't want to die like this. I don't want to make this a part of my story because my story is going to end very quickly because I don't have the gumption for this. Ali, on the other hand, realized this is what he loves. He loves adrenaline. He loves action. He loves violence. He loves, uh, you, know, you know, just war or at least covering war. He's not loving, he's not a sadist, he's not a maniac, but he loves being a journalist who gives you the on-the-ground report. And I've known many war correspondents since I met him. Um, I've worked with many of them as well, and they're all the same. It's, uh, you know, it's narcissism coupled with adrenaline, coupled with a need to see things firsthand. A need to get the freshest version of the truest version of the information and then present it to the world so that people get the most unfiltered truth that they can possibly get. People like Ali put their lives on the line so the rest of us can know what's happening in war. Because war is not nice. War is not pretty. War is pretty fucking ugly. And Ali is in an ugly place right now. He is in Kiev. He is in Ukraine. He has been there since the day before the war started. The day before the Russian tanks rolled across the border and he is there still. Um, he's reporting from there and for now he's safe, but you know, I, God, I hope he stays safe. So I called up Ali, I contacted him and I said, hey, I do a podcast, it's a comedy podcast, but it's got some newsy elements and I'd really like to talk to you about Ukraine. And because he's a lovely friend who 
I don't know why he's so generous with his time. He works for TRT, which is the Turkish news channel. It's Turkish 24-hour English news network um, that broadcasts around the world. You can watch it online if you want to. And he's, you know, he's been with Al Jazeera English. He's been with Vice News before that. He's been with the Canadian broadcasting channel. So, you know, he's been around and TRT is who is who sent him into Ukraine. So he's reporting from them from dawn till nighttime. 9 p.m. at night is when he got off his shift. Um, and then he got on a WhatsApp call with me. The audio as a result is not great. It's not the way I wanted the audio to be, but I can't exactly ask Ali Mustafa in U- Ukraine, in, you know, uh, Kiev uh, to get a better internet connection. So, you know, he he used WhatsApp. I tried to clean up the audio as best I could. I think I've done an, a manageable, tolerable job. And you can actually now listen to a really good interview with someone who's on the ground with some really surprising bits of information. And it, not just about Ukraine, stuff that's happening there, but also what it is like to be a war correspondent, why he is a war correspondent. And I thought it was an interesting episode to release this week because this is the only episode I'll release this week because the comedy festival starts on Thursday. So I'm not going to be able to do the news weekly production on Thursday the way I normally do and release the episode on Friday morning. So this will be the news weekly you get this week. For the next four weeks, you'll get editorial editions. I can't promise all of them will be as good as me talking to a war correspondent who's on the ground right now, but I'll damn well try to make them, you know, interesting at the very least. Um, but I thought it was interesting to release this. I thought it was important to release something like this because I saw a bunch of, um, you know, uh, <laughs> I saw a bunch of things happening on Twitter, um, which I took part in as well. I'll be very honest. But OK, so today's the day that the Academy Awards were. And unless you are, I don't know, I guess living in Ukraine, you don't, you know, you'll know that uh, Will Smith slapped Chris Rock. Basically, Chris Rock was the MC. He made a joke about the celebrities there, the way the MC does, particularly when it's a comedian like Chris Rock. He makes fun of the celebrities in attendance. And he slapped. And, and, and Chris Rock made a joke about Jada Pinkett Smith, Will Smith's wife, who apparently has alopecia and therefore is bald. Now, I didn't know that. I didn't know she was bald or any of those things. All I knew was that she was sitting there. She was bald. Chris Rock says uh, you something along the lines of, you know, looking forward to seeing you in G.I. Jane 2. G.I. Jane, by the way, for those of you who were born any time other than in the early, late 80s, is a 1997 movie starring Demi Moore, which no one watched, no one cared about. And people had to probably Wikipedia to find out what the fuck he was referencing. Um, and Will Smith... Uh, Jada Pinkett Smith's husband um, walked onto the stage and at the Academy Awards in front of thousands of people slapped Chris Rock. Like a full-on slap. Now, there are people who believe that this whole thing was choreographed. I've watched it a bunch of times. I don't think it was. I think it was legit. I think Will Smith basically lost his shit, came up and slapped um, Chris Rock and then went, sat back down, and then started yelling, get my wife's name out of your fucking mouth, or something like that. It was a shit show. It re- Look, it's the kind of thing that if I was doing News Weekly this week, I would probably lead with that story. Um, but I also, so, you know, and then people are making jokes about it on Twitter, and there's a thousand things I can say about it as well. Things like I've done gigs where I've, you know, had a punter throw a, a glass at me. I've had a gig where I've had, you know, a, a, a neo-Nazi take his shirt off and then charge the stage. And I had to fight him off using the mic stand, you know, and and every comedian's had a gig where you make fun of the woman and the guy next to her decides that he needs to show how macho he is and he will get up and try fighting you. Every comedian's been to that. I just didn't think that, A, it would happen at the Academy Awards. And I also didn't think that people would be defending that guy. 
that they'd be attacking the comedian. Because everyone's saying that Chris Rock made fun of Jada Pinkett Smith and she has alopecia and you shouldn't make fun of someone with a disability. Now, there's a few things I want to say about that before we move on to Ali Mustafa's really good interview. I don't know why I'm wasting time on this. I should be ashamed of myself for doing so. I really am ashamed of myself for doing so. But fuck it, it's my podcast. So here we are. Um, First thing I want to say is it was a dumb joke. It wasn't a good joke. It was obviously a dumb joke. Clearly, Chris Rock riffed it in the moment. And, you know, it wasn't particularly clever or interesting or anything like that. However, I don't think it was a slap-worthy joke. I don't think you slap another person at an Academy Award. I don't think you slap another person unless they do something horrendously egregious. And I don't think that qualified as horrendously egregious. I'm not against slapping. There's a lot of people on Twitter right now who say um, things like, uh, I don't condone violence. I condone violence. I grew up in Pakistan. I met some people that deserved to beat down. All right. There were times when we got into fights in Karachi because we had to get into fights in Karachi. And that's just a thing that happens. But I think in this case, Will Smith definitely did not need to do what he did. Um, I also think that the reactions to all of this are very bizarre. First thing, as a journalist, a bit of a fact check. And I got to do this because everyone on Twitter is going, Chris Rock deserved that for making fun of someone with a disability. I'm not being a dick when I say this, I promise. I just looked it up. The American Disabilities Association, as well as many other organizations, including the Alopecia Foundation, say that alopecia is not a disability. There are disabilities in the world. Alopecia is not one of them. Um, And that's important, I think, because a disability, according to civil rights law, is something that prohibits discrimination against, uh, you know, or uh, basically the ADA, the uh, American Disabilities Act in from 1990 prohibits discrimination against individuals with disabilities in all public life. And the way you qualify a disability is something that impairs your daily life. And alopecia is not something that does that. Of course, it's got a psychological tool, but you can be a very perfectly healthy person with alopecia. In fact, one of my oldest and best friends is a very healthy person with alopecia. Am I literally saying I have a friend with alopecia and therefore I can make fun of it? No, probably sounds like that, but I promise I'm not. And I promise I'm not trying to be a dick here. I'm not saying Chris Rock's joke was justified. Um, Don't make fun of people's appearance. I completely understand and respect that. I'm just saying it wasn't slap worthy. And some of the narrative on Twitter is, as Twitter always is, quite unhinged. Um, For some reason, the joke about alopecia was violence. An act of words are violence, but physically slapping the shit out of another person is not violence. So I think we've lost the plot on what is and is not violence. Um, And the other thing that's really funny or bizarre about all this, well, okay, first, I'll say this, it is fucking funny. It is really fucking funny. Uh, The Oscars and the Academies are boring. No one watches them. The last time anyone cared was when they got the... um, La La Land mixed up with another movie um, with Moonlight Mile, I think it was something. This is the only other time anyone's cared about the Oscars. You know what? Maybe if someone slaps someone every year, it'll be more watchable. So yeah, fuck it. I'm on board. I like chaos. I'm not against a little bit of madness happening. Um, Let's all judge who we want to judge. That's fine. But the other part of this that I find really interesting is so many of my friends, you know, people on Twitter who are cultural commentators, well, you know, even some journalists I saw saying things like, This act of violence made me physically ill. And I can't believe I saw something like this. And I was like, there's a fucking war on in Ukraine right now. How sanitized is your news coverage? How sanitized the world you live in that you think a millionaire slapping another millionaire 
both of whom, one is an actor, one is a comedian, both are actually actors, technically speaking, is an act of violence that made you physically ill, but the war in Ukraine is something you've completely forgotten about. As something I haven't seen a single person say the war in Ukraine is making them physically ill. That's normalized, this isn't. I sound. I know I sound ridiculous, I know I'm doing whataboutism, but I found that fucking ridiculous and really funny that people have that point of view. So I thought maybe this episode is a good reminder that, you know what? There's a fucking war on in Ukraine right now. And it's ugly and there are people dying and there are people hurting and there are journalists there risking their lives. Some of them who are dying to get you the best possible information you can have on it. And it's all goddamn more important than Will Smith and... Chris Rock, who I've just dedicated 10 minutes of this fucking podcast to already. So I will shut up. All I'm going to say is, you know, I hope you like the interview with um, Ali Mustafa. And after the interview, stick around for a few more notes from me. And I will see you back here next week. Otherwise, thank you very much. And this is me talking to Ali Mustafa. All right. So Ali, I want to find out, are you safe? Where, like, where are you right now in Ukraine? I am in the capital, Kiev, and in the center of Kiev, the Medan, um, I, I would say I'm relatively safe because the explosions this evening, I, I don't think they've been that far from, uh, from the city center. And we've seen this for the past uh, two or three days where uh, the Russians have bombed a, an oil depot they are. Uh, they've bombed a, a suburb of Kiev called Brovary on the east, and Russian forces are battling Ukrainian uh, Ukrainian counteroffensive uh, in Irpin and Bucha, which is to the northwest. So, what's Kiev like right now? We've seen pictures of Mariupol, and that is completely devastated. I mean, that looks like there's no way anyone could live there anymore. But Kiev's footage, at least the footage you've seen. Seems like it's relatively unscathed. Absolutely. Uh, the city center where I'm at, the Maidan, uh, you've got the Hotel Ukraine here, you've got the presidency behind it, you've got the, uh, the so-called 2014 Martyr Square. Um, that area is intact. So the Russians tried in the first two days to employ shock and awe tactics. Now, I've been here in Ukraine for 32 days. I arrived one day before the Russians attacked, which was on the 24th. So I arrived in Kiev on a flight from Istanbul on the 23rd. And it, it was relatively normal. It was the second time I was visiting Kiev. I had visited it a month earlier with uh, Erdogan uh, when he came here on a state visit. And he met uh, Zelensky, Volodymyr Zelensky, the president, mm. uh, at the Mariinsky Palace. And it was completely normal. There were people on the streets. A lot was happening. The bars were open. It was alive. The city was at that stage was 4 million people. Today, uh, on the 25th of March, the city is between 1.5 to 2 million people. The center of the city is largely deserted, but it's better now than it was three weeks ago when you could hear the sound of explosions was relentless. You could hear an explosion after every 30 minutes. So far, in the past 24 hours, we've heard maybe four or five explosions, including an oil depot to the east, mm -hmm. uh, which the Russians targeted. They've also targeted a, a 
what we are being told is a tank assembly plant in the um, east of the city as well. So there, there are these targets, but the, the way the Russians are operating here is how they would operate, let's say, in Aleppo, because they realize that time is on their side and they don't want to rush in. And as we're speaking, uh, uh, an air raid siren just, go, just went off. Um, and I'll open the, the window so you can mm -hmm. probably hear a little bit of it. And these air raid sirens basically keep you on your toe on your toes uh, because they're a constant reminder that something is happening in and around. So when the air raid sign goes off, what's the modus operandi? Are you required to, you know, head down to a bunker? Are you safe where you are? What do you have to do? So in the early days, we would head down to the bunkers. And uh, uh, as soon as I arrived in Kiev, uh, just before the war started, I flew out to Zaporozhia which is close to Mariupol, in the hope of getting to Mariupol. But when the war started, we decided to stay back in Zaporozhia. And in those days, when the air raid sirens would go off like that, we would head down to the bunkers. And even in Kiev, in those days, you would head down to the bunkers. But now, the siren means there's something happening in the Kiev region, not necessarily where you are. Having said that, we are still close to government buildings. We are still close to what Ukrainian intelligence says are known Russian targets. When the Russians will attack those targets, if they will attack those targets, we don't know. It all depends on what the end game is. And I think only one person knows that at this stage. But even that, one month into this conflict, is uncertain because of the resistance that the Ukrainians have shown. So we hear a lot about that resistance and, and it's been quite, you know, the, the stories that have been coming out of incredible bravery, but also of the failures of the Russian army with regards to this invasion. How true is that? I mean, from what you've seen, is Russia really bogged down? Is this a losing war for them? Well, it's a matter of perspective here as well, right? Mm -hmm. Because the Ukrainians are certainly winning the propaganda war uh, online in, in terms of social media in terms of the information that they're able to get out, it's more sophisticated and um, more widespread than what the Russians have been able to get out. Having said that, what you have to keep in mind is that Russians have not even employed 10 or 15% of their total force. They've sent in 200,000 of their soldiers. They get uh, uh, the figures of how many have been killed in action today. Russian uh, officials came out and said 1,500 soldiers have been killed so far. That is different from what observers, independent observers say it might be up to nine and a half to 10,000, mm -hmm. right? Americans say it's close to 15,000. So you don't necessarily know what the death toll is. And the Russians have a sophisticated army. The weapons systems that they've employed thus far in this conflict haven't been sophisticated. You see pictures of tanks being abandoned, stuck in mud, uh, tractors dragging, uh, aging uh, Russian equipment, including air defense systems and so on and so forth. But having said that, the Russians have a lot more in reserve. When they employ that, and as we've seen in Mariupol, if they want to level a city or parts of the city, they can easily do that. Mm -hmm. So it comes down to what their end game is. Is their end game, as some officials have said in the past 20 years, to secure Donbass with Crimea and create a sort of a... Uh, 
land bridge, so to speak, with Russian breakaway territories in Moldova? Is there end game to besiege major cities, uh, which they have unsuccessfully tried thus far in Kiev, for example? Their plan was to cut it off and circle it all the way, which they haven't been able to. The only city they were, that they were able to encircle was Mariupol, and we saw what happened there. So what the ultimate aim is, what is the end game? Is there a diplomatic out? We don't have answers to this question. What is happening is that this is a massive country. Mm-hmm. From Lviv to Kiev, it takes you about 15 to 16 hours to drive in these circumstances. In normal circumstances, it would take you about six to seven hours. From one end of the country to the other end of the country, it takes you maybe 30 hours to drive. So we're not talking about a small uh, state. Ukraine is massive. And maybe that's why the Russians are making these, quote, calculated moves. And maybe that's why they're trying to encircle Ukrainian forces at some positions. And honestly, maybe there is some truth to the fact that Russian uh, equipment is dated, that, that, that as a result of corruption, um, things like uh, vehicle tires, mm-hmm. right? Uh, there was corruption in that. Or in, uh, in, in getting a wooden bed for a truck as opposed to a steel iron bed for a truck and the difference that makes. So, for example, you have analysts on uh, online who say that because of corruption, these the maintenance on these equipment or these vehicles wasn't properly done. And when they rolled out because of the temperature difference, cold to hot, whatever, the, the, tr- uh, the tires on these trucks or uh, the tires that were under these multi-million dollar defense um, equipment basically started to break, uh, break off. That created long lines and problems for their logistics. And so there are these minute details that come out. But as I said, that, you know, the Russians could easily employ whatever bad or outdated Mm -hmm. equipment they have in the first stage of the conflict, let's say this month, then consolidate and regroup and send in the big guns and the more well-trained soldiers, so to speak. You mentioned soldiers. Um, we've heard a lot about uh, volunteer soldiers coming in from other parts of the world, people flying in, um, you know, not officially, like not official, for example, U.S. Army soldiers, but U.S. Army reserves and such apparently flying in and just volunteering their services. Are you seeing a lot of that? Are you seeing a lot of foreigners in Ukraine here to fight for the Ukrainians? So-called mercenaries, uh, as somebody some would call them. Mm. You know what? We've seen um, uh, Chechens fighting on the side of Ukrainians. We've seen people from Dagestan and all these uh, caucus republics that were subjugated by the Russians in large numbers. Mm. And we've seen it on both sides because on uh, the Russian side, you have the so-called Kadyrov Brigade Mm. or the Kadyrov Chechens. And these are completely ruthless, like, and they're quite hated by the Ukrainians. But the Ukrainians themselves have created something called a foreign legion uh, in the past month, which basically takes in anyone who wants to come and fight against the Russians, they'll accept them, induct them, and send them to the front lines. That isn't to say there aren't reports of um, Americans or some Americans deserting after joining and then trying to get away. Um, But it's not just about getting foreign fighters. That's only one part of it, right? Mm. What the Ukrainians have been demanding 
is more sophisticated weapons. In fact, over the past few days, the Ukrainians have said that they need um, up to 500 javelins a day. Those javelins are anti-tank um, portable man pads or missile a missile system that you just launch like a stinger. Mm-hmm. So they say they need 500 javelins a day. They say they need uh, 500 stingers a day. These are large, like that's a large amount. And mm-hmm. for how long? So it comes down to equipment. It comes down to, for the Ukrainians, a no-fly zone. They're demanding a no-fly zone, have been for some time. They're like, it's essential for them to shoot down these Russian uh, fighter jets, even though Russians haven't necessarily employed fighter jets in that to that extent. The ones that they did employ in the first couple of weeks were easily shot down. So what the Russians have been doing is that they've been firing cruise missiles from the Black Sea deep into Ukrainian territory. So there are questions as to how effective a missile defense system might be. And if they do get a missile defense system from NATO, does that then enlarge the war? As we saw mm. Joe Biden today in Poland, and they've sent about, the Americans have sent about 5,000 extra troops to Poland. The fear is, and the, Pol- uh, the, the Poles also realize this, the Eastern Europeans realize this, that this war will expand. That they say that uh, Vladimir Putin will not stop at the NATO boundary. That it'll spill over. And if you look at the statements coming out of Russia as well, some of these Russian commentators on state TV are talking about tactical nuclear weapons dropping a tactical nuclear weapon mm. on Warsaw, for example. So who knows where this will stop? Who knows, um, you know, how far the Russians are willing to go? And if when we look at the map, we see that Pakistan, India, China haven't necessarily vetoed mm-hmm. or voted against, um, you know, Russia when it comes to sanctions, when it comes to condemnation at the United Nations. So the Russians might not be as desperate as we are being led to believe. But it is desperate times when it comes to Ukraine and the Ukrainians here. You've been to several war zones at this point. I remember you were in Afghanistan before this, during the when the Americans you know, ran out of it. You've been in Libya, you mentioned. What's different here? What's, what's, what are you seeing in Ukraine that you haven't seen in these other places? So, uh, so in Afghanistan, I was there for uh, a month. I arrived four days after the Taliban takeover. I landed on a charter, a, a Pakistan International Airlines charter flight. Uh, that probably was, was the hardest part of your journey, was the Pakistan International Airlines <laughs> flight. <laughs> <laughs> it was empty. It was actually not bad. It was re- uh, a chartered by the World Bank for the World Bank. Okay. <laughs> Once we got to Kabul, it was complete uncertainty and chaos. There was complete uh, vacuum there. There was no authority. The Taliban had come in. There was a threat of a suicide bombing and there was a suicide attack. There was a threat of people firing at you or Taliban firing at you and they did fire at our hotel. But by and large, you remained in Kabul, right? Mm -hmm. Not many distances on the wide distances to travel. In Libya, I got there uh, in Tripoli when Khalifa Haftar's forces were trying to breach the city and intensifying the bombings there. It got so bad that my cameraman, who was a Bosnian who had survived um, the Sarajevo siege said, Ali, I'm leaving. And he left. And mm. because I was reminding him <laughs> of the Sarajevo siege. So it was a different kind of challenge, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because so many, uh, uh, it's such a huge country, getting from one point to the other 
going through, so in the past month, I've been through 700 checkpoints. And approaching each checkpoint gives you, like, you know, a, a chill runs through your spine. Mm. Because you don't know what's going to happen in that moment, even though the Ukrainians have been okay. What we've seen is that because there's so many, the, the lines are so fluid, or have been so fluid over the past four weeks, that journalists have crossed accidentally into another area where they've been shot at. Oh. Like we saw with the Fox News uh, team mm-hmm. and their cameraman was killed, their freelance journalist slash fixer who was a Ukrainian, she was killed and their correspondent is still recovering from serious injuries. Uh, he's been transported out of, uh, out of Ukraine. Um, in other instances, we saw the American, uh, one American journalist, former New York Times reporter, cross into, a, uh, like, go beyond a Ukrainian checkpoint in Irpin, and he was shot at, and he died. So you don't know where the lines are, and because it's so fluid, you don't know where it will go. And this also goes, or this also probably has to do with the fluidity of Ukrainian identity. Mm-hmm. The story that we don't necessarily hear about are the quote-unquote traitors that the Ukrainians are killing themselves, allegedly for conspiring against Ukraine mm-hmm. and siding with the Russians. So, for example, one of their um, one of their negotiators that went on one of these rounds of talks from the Ukrainian side, when this guy got back, the Ukrainians executed him. So... It's a fluid situation. The identity formation for the Ukrainians is an ongoing process which will speed up exponentially after this Russian assault on this country. And the process of that identity formation will claim a lot more casualties and it will create a lot more chaos. I think this is just the beginning of that process. How long, how far it goes, and language also plays a role, keep in mind, Mm -hmm. because a lot of Ukrainians, this country only gained independence in 1991, and a lot of Ukrainians uh, speak Russian as a common language. You don't realize till you hear how different Ukrainian and Russian have become over time. So maybe in the future, language will be a loyalty test. Mm -hmm. So there are Ukrainians here who identify or think in Russian, right? Further down the line, they will probably need to denounce Russian as a language. We aren't there yet, but it'll get there. And that process will be extremely messy. And I think that's been a hard part as a journalist, as a brown journalist coming from outside into this country, like trying to tell that story from that perspective. Mm-hmm. You, you can compare what the Russians are doing in Mariupol, for example, to what they did in Aleppo, right? They sieged the place. They created these so-called humanitarian corridors, let people out, killed a lot of people while they were getting out, and whoever remained in the city, they just leveled it out. Of course, they had the backing of the Syrian regime then, and Iranian militias also taking part in that process, as well as the Kurdish uh, anti-Turkish YPG, also a part of that process. Here, they're trying to, they have those separatists in Donetsk and Lohan, mm. the Russians, that is. They've created a land bridge of sorts uh, from Crimea to Donetsk, even though they bypass Mariupol to do it, but they'll completely wipe out all resistance in Mariupol. They'll have those accesses, and they've tried to do it in other parts of the country as well, in Kharkiv, in Sumy. They've tried to encircle those cities. 
have failed in Kharkiv, so they bypass and go on. So th- their entire movement is about besieging and encircling, mm. and then using a hammer, a hard hammer, to subjugate the enemy into submission. And these are tactics that they've used elsewhere as well. It's not a new playbook, right? Yeah. But because the, because the Ukrainians are more well armed, they have an identity or a stronger identity that's more cohesive. They're on their home turf. These tactics are being tested, but the Russians have time. So, with regards to some of the stuff that we've seen coming out of there, and so much of the coverage and footage has been around, uh, um, and and you know, the, the for example, American media and most Western media is portraying him as a remarkable hero. What is the feeling in Ukraine itself, in Kiev, uh, of the leader? Uh, about Zelensky? Yes. The Ukrainians love Zelensky at this current point mm-hmm. in time. That isn't to say that Zelensky hasn't made mistakes in the past. Um, but they're taking him more seriously. And the fact that he stayed back in this country when he had an option, an offer by the Americans to leave, mm. has, has further galvanized people. They say that if our leadership is here, then we are here. And also, we talk about Zelensky in one end, but also the mayor of uh, Kiev, uh, Vitaly Klitschko, mm-hmm. the former boxing champion. So, before, uh, interestingly, I was just having a conversation with a few local journalists here, and they said that Klitschko was, is considered or was considered extremely corrupt. In any um, housing scheme or apartment building scheme or whatever, or anything to do with anything, this guy had his hand in it. But now, as a result of the war, or as a result of the Russian offensive, all those past um, alleged follies or uh, you know mistakes, mm-hmm. quote unquote, have been forgiven. So the war has cleansed or purified a lot of these leaders that just a few months ago were weren't really considered as ideal role models, so to speak. But now because they're there, because they're facing off and they have this opportunity on a global platform like Zelensky. People are more accepting of them. Ali, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about what it is like being you in these places. You've been to from war zone to war zone to war zone. Is, is it taking a toll? Uh, how tired are you? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, and it's a question that a lot of people uh, keep asking me including my mother and, mm-hmm. um, you know, other people as well. And um, it's in, in, in a situation where, the, where tensions are running high, where your life is on the line sometimes, at least on the outside, right? You're putting yourself in, in, in the middle of something. Not everyone can do it. Mm. And not everyone should do it. We had a correspondent here uh, for, for TRT who was here for a month and a half before the conflict started. And when the conflict started, she lost it. Mm-hmm. She completely went AWOL, right? Because she knew what was coming. It was building up. And when it happened, it was just too much to bear. Some people react differently. You know you have to be extremely calm. You know, and especially you know me, Sunny. Mm-hmm. You know how reckless we 
we have been or as journalists covering conflict and suicide attacks in Pakistan, what kind of situations we put ourselves in. Yeah. Pulling back from that, 15, 16 years later, there's a certain kind of, or you have to be a certain kind of individual to be able to handle this kind of pressure. That isn't to say that you don't break down eventually, that it doesn't catch up with you. Mm -hmm. But it's also a process that can be addicting or addictive uh, in the sense that you, you are attracted to situations that are intense. And then when you're not part of those situations, you become restless. Mm. So it's a difficult situation or position to be in. But uh, it's also an honor and realizing the fact that only a few people are given that opportunity or can tell those stories. Yes, it's an ego trip. Yes, it it fuels your sense of, you know, um, I wouldn't say narcissism. (laughs) (laughs) But, but yes, it, it is a rush. It's an adrenaline rush. But the kind of things you encounter along the way over time, I'll be 41 in June. I'll turn 41 in June. Um, I've been doing this now for 18 years. How long will I be able to do it? I don't know. But every day that I get to do it is a privilege. So right now, how many other foreign journalists are you? I remember whenever, you know, whenever there's been a war and the foreign correspondents, the war correspondents get there, they all kind of hold up inside a couple of hotels, they all meet at the bars, and then everyone goes and covers the same stories. Is it the same thing there as well? Like, you know, the green zone in Kabul used to be, for example. Uh, you know, alcohol sales have been banned across Ukraine. So getting alcohol during wartime has been extremely difficult. There are a lot of journalists, especially from Spain, from Greece, from um, uh, elsewhere, Italy. There were a lot of journalists here at one point in time from Turkey. But when the Turkish, um, uh, when the Turkish embassy ran away, or, 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 left, Kabul, or left Kiev, the Turkish journalists w- uh, went with them. The thing is that there's this false sense of calm, right? And because this war is unlike any other, because you don't know where these lines are, you can get into this idea of, oh, it'll drag on like this for a while, till it doesn't. This conflict has been especially difficult mm. because of the length and amount of time it takes to get from one place to the other to the other. It's, covering this conflict is, uh, has been a lot about logistics. How do you get from point A to point B safely? And then how do you continue your coverage doing it? And getting to this point took about 32 days, right? Right. Because I've traveled in those 32 days from Kiev to Zaporizhia to Oman to Vinitsa to uh, Lviv, and then from Lviv back to Vinitsa, uh, and then from Vinitsa to Kiev. So it's been one thing after the other after the other. And there's a lot of movement. So you don't necessarily get time to fraternize uh, with uh, with journalists Mm -hmm. as you would, let's say, even in Kabul, like, you know, you'd catch a breath, say hi to someone, maybe go out, get some food, and so on and so forth. So this has been a grueling, grueling experience where 32 days, honestly, if nothing, if nothing less than, it feels like three or four months of work. So what's next for you right now? How, long, how much longer do you think you're going to be in Kiev and in Ukraine overall? And when you do get out, how do you get out? 
Okay, so um, my my aim is to finish about five or six uh, enterprise stories in Kiev mm-hmm. and offer lives if and when I can. And I believe that this process will be done by the first week of April. Once I finish those stories, I will head back south, which is a safe way out of Kiev, uh, towards a place called Fastau. From Fastau, I will go further um, west to a place called Vinitsa. Then I will head towards Lviv, which is on the Polish border. Mm. From Lviv, I will take an hour and a half car ride to go to a Polish border crossing, one of four or five, whichever gives me the quickest access out. And then I will cross into Poland by foot. And then I will take a train to Warsaw and I will take a flight to Istanbul. That's the plan. How it works out, Mm. (laughs) I don't know. But um, that is my plan at this stage. All right. Well, here's hoping the plan works. Stay safe, Ali. Thank you so much. Anytime, bro. Thank you for thinking about me. Of course. So that was Ali Mustafa. Um, you can find him on Twitter at, at Ali Mustafa. That's A-L-I-M-U-S-T-A-F-A. Uh, he's a phenomenal journalist who does amazing work. And follow his Twitter feed to see some really incredible on-the-ground journalism from Ukraine. Like I said, I'm going to be not doing traditional news weekly episodes for the next four weeks. Um, those will come back after the comedy festival is over. I promise I'm going to miss doing them as well. There's so much stuff I want to talk about. It'll probably be just my luck and they'll announce the election and Scott Morrison fall into a pothole and Anthony Albanese will somehow skewer himself on kebab skewers or something ridiculous will end up happening. All of them will turn out to be dope fiends or something and I won't be able to report on it. Look, if something like that happens, I might just try reporting on it. But... In the meantime, um, please buy tickets to my Melbourne International Comedy Festival show. And if you aren't in Melbourne, tell your friends to buy tickets to my Melbourne International Comedy Festival show. I've got a hundred seater every night for 24 nights. I got a lot of tickets to sell and I can use your support. So the show's got unappreciated. You can buy tickets on thesamishow.com. I'm also coming to Sydney and I'll be announcing my birth dates very soon as well. So you can buy tickets for those if you are in either of those cities. Otherwise, I will see you right back here on Newsweekly Editorial Editions next week as well. Please head over to patreon.com slash samishah. That's S-A-M-I-S-H-A-H where I post all kinds of book reviews, book recommendations, recipes, early editions of Newsweekly, text editions of Newsweekly sometimes, a whole bunch of other content as well. I'm happy to take any suggestions on things you want to see or hear about in these editorial editions or on my Patreon. Thank you so much for your support. It cannot tell you how much it means to me that you're listening, that you're keeping this podcast going and that you like the stuff that I'm hopefully putting out there. Or even if you don't like the stuff that you're tolerating it. Stay safe, everyone. Bye.